It's great to see you this morning. Uh, we want to welcome those that are joining us online. Uh, we are not welcoming our Edgewood campus today uh, because Cody King, uh, which was on our uh, Wills Point campus, uh, this is his first official Sunday as the Edgewood campus pastor. He's teaching them live, and so uh, I know they're excited about that. We are too. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, when you turn with me to Romans chapter 5 as we continue our series, uh, Romans Revealing the Righteousness of God. And uh, real quickly, if you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, um, then, then you missed a, a good bulk of chapter 4. But I'm going to go ahead and just kind of catch you up from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 5. Uh, in chapter 1, uh, Paul makes an appeal to Rome, this powerful city uh, where a lot of people would say Paul was shrinking back in fear. They would say, Paul, you're willing to go to, to Corinth, you're willing to go to Ephesus, you're willing to go to Galatia, but you're not willing to come here. And Paul says, no, I'm willing to come there, but the Lord has hindered me from doing such. But Paul then uh, begins to, to, to write out and he just says, hey, listen, you need to understand that the wrath of God is being revealed, that, that against all foolishness, uh, against all um, wickedness, the God of heaven and earth is going to make himself known. And then he just says, and he's not going to, he's not going to, to pick sides. He says he's going to make his wrath known to the Jews and to the Gentiles alike. And then he goes on and he just begins to make the case that there is not one who is righteous. In chapter 3, he says not even one. Uh, Romans 3.23, he said, For all sin falls short of the glory of God. And so he is making his appeal to Rome, and he's saying we are all in trouble. We are all destined to see the wrath of God being revealed. And then he, in chapter 4, says, and, and here's the deal, you and I think that we're going to make our way back to God in some way. And he says, and this is not the way. He says, you're not going to find yourself back to God because you do good works. He says, you're not going to find yourself back to God because you are doing some external measures like circumcision. And he said, and you're not going to find your way back to God through the law. And so he is basically saying, look, you are missing out on all that God has for you if you think that you're going to somehow work your way to him. But he says, if you'll pay attention, he says, God works his way to you. And today in Romans chapter 5, we're going to see the unmatched love of God. And we'll begin in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, which is, says, therefore. Now, anytime that there is a therefore, you've got to figure out what it's there for. Um, and so it's therefore this reason. He's saying, look, you and I don't earn our way to God. So he says, if you want to see the unmatched love of God, then he says, pay attention. Um, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, the idea of justification is the idea of, of your debt being canceled. It's the idea that you've been made right with God. The idea of justification, though, doesn't happen because of good works or by circumcision or by the law. He says it is by what? Faith. It's by faith that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we map out these 11 verses that we're going to see this morning, he's basically just making the case for five different things that we're going to see. And the very first one you see in verse 1 is the idea of amnesty. Amnesty is an opportunity for you and I to experience forgiveness by the grace of God through faith. We can have peace with God, though the Scriptures would tell us that apart from Him we are enemies. Paul would say it this way in Romans chapter 7, a couple of more chapters. In verse 18, he says, I know that there is nothing good in me that is my flesh except through Jesus Christ. So Paul recognizes that in our sinfulness, in our 
uh, our flesh, the way that we are created and conceived in our mother's womb, he says we are guilty. But because of the justification by faith, he says we can be made right. We can have peace. We can have forgiveness through faith. And we can have fellowship with God. So if you have your Bible, you can write right there outside in the margin, amnesty. The idea of amnesty is just that you and I are forgiven by a great king. You got a pardon. Instead of being thrown away and locked into the dungeon, you have life and you have eternal peace with God. That's incredible. In verse 2, he goes on and he says, And it's through him that we've obtained access. Right there where it says, through him, you could put a little question mark because you got to go, well, who, who is it that gives us access? It is Jesus. So through him, we've obtained access by what? Faith. That's the key word here, by faith. Not by works, not by law, not by circumcision, but by faith into this grace in which we stand. If you have the, a Bible right there, you can underline the word stand. The re, re, uh, reality of all this is that you and I will not be able to stand before God unless we have a measure of faith credited to our account because of Christ and His righteousness. So think about that. You would see in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That will be our initial response. But who is it that can stand in God's presence? Only those who have obtained access through faith. And so he gives you amnesty, but look at this. He also, verse 2, he gives you access, which is really cool that you and I can stand in the presence of God. Now think about that. Who are you and I that God would be mindful of us? That's what David asked. Who is it that God would care about us, that, that he would be mindful of us, that we could stand in his presence? How does that happen? Because he's mindful of us, he gives us access. And look at this, and we rejoice in hope. And we rejoice in hope. Now listen, I don't know about why it is we gathered this morning, but I have an inkling of an idea that many of us didn't come here to rejoice in hope. Like we came for certain reasons, and, and for some of those uh, those reasons weren't to rejoice in hope. It wasn't to declare our lips of praise to the Lord. I don't know why it is here, but like I think if you and I were to pay attention to people around us, we could see pretty quickly who was rejoicing in hope. Typically, the people that are rejoicing in hope are the ones that you're like, dude, they're a little weird. They're oftentimes the one you move from. But what does it look like to rejoice in hope? What, what does it look like to praise the Lord, the glory of God? Listen, people who understand amnesty and access rejoice in hope. They understand that they are afflicted, removed, enemies, strangers of God, but now they've been given access. And he doesn't stop there. He says, and not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. So what he says is, he goes, we've been given access, we've been granted a new and a right relationship with God by faith in his son, and so we rejoice in hope. But then he goes, but you don't just rejoice in hope, you don't just rejoice in good times, you also rejoice in sufferings. And he uses this word uh, in the Greek uh, that's uh, thlipsis, and 
This word means to be squeezed or to be pressed. It literally means to be afflicted, oppressed, tribulation, distress, hardship, pain. That's the idea of the word. And so he says, you are rejoicing when you are squeezed. When life gets hard, you rejoice, which is very challenging for you and I to do, especially for me. That's why Paul also writes to uh, the church of Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, he encourages them in several ways. Look what he says. He says, I don't want you to lose heart. So don't lose heart. Though your outer self is wasting away. Now, many of us understand that our outer self is wasting away. For instance, you got out of bed this morning and you're like, I didn't realize that I had a muscle there and it hurts. Um, I feel like that every single day that I get up, I'm like, I feel a new element, a new pain. Uh, It's a new realization that my life is closer to the end than it was the beginning. And as I begin to realize that the outer self is wasting away, it says that our inner self is what? Being renewed day by day. So that even though our body is, is literally giving way and it's beginning to return to the dust in which it came from, he says your soul can be shaped into the glory of God. It can be conformed. Our minds can be transformed. Our minds can be renewed. Which is an encouraging thing because even in our sufferings, we can rejoice. We can give God the glory even though life is hard. Even though we're squeezed and pressed because of verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction. The word there, affliction, is flipsis. Same word. This light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It means that God is using that suffering. And you you can rejoice in it. Why do you rejoice in it? Because of what Paul goes on to say. Look at the latter part of verse 3 in Romans 5. So he says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And then the reason why is because we know that that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces hope. And guess what? Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Incredible here that God is using suffering, thalipsis, these moments that we're squeezed and afflicted and pressed. He's using that to produce in us endurance. And endurance, character, and character, hope. Now, when you look at the word endurance there, it's the word in the Greek called hupomone. Everybody say hupomone. There you go. You got you a Greek word. You can tuck it under your belt and you can use it later, okay? Hupomone is steadfast endurance. When you're waiting on your waitress at lunch and it's a little slower than you'd like, you just look at your neighbor and go, hey, hupomone. Endure. Press on. The idea of this word is is to patiently endure. It's to not be easily moved. It's not to swerve or to get off path. It's the idea that you and I would hold fast. It's steadfastness. It's being unwavering in what you're called to do. Matter of fact, the half-brother of Jesus, James, he wrote it in this way in his book in James chapter 5, verse 11. And I want you to see who he compares this to. He says, Behold... We consider those blessed who've remained hupomone. It's the word, steadfast. 
So we see those that have been blessed that they, they're unwavering, they're steadfast, they're immovable. And then he says this, you have heard the steadfastness, the hupomone of Job, a man who endured, a man who was accused by his friends of sin, a man that lost his family and all that he had. You see that and he goes, look at Job. And then he says this, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, the question that you have to ask yourself, and it's a very deep theological question, is was God loving when he allowed Job to be afflicted? When, when Job broke out in boils, did God love him? When Job lost his wife and his children and all that he had, was God loving in that? The question that you have to ask yourself, is there ever a time in all of history that God in his sovereign, righteous, strong, sovereign plan, has he ever not been loving? Is there ever a time where we shouldn't be steadfast because of the Lord's compassion and merciful ways? See, I think oftentimes we look at God and, and we think, well, I deserve something. I, I, don't, I don't deserve to suffer or to, to go through these afflicting trials. I don't deserve to have all those things. But can I just help you understand something real quickly? Because of God's wrath and the fact that it's being revealed against all unrighteousness, every single one of us on the planet, because we've been conceived of natural flesh, meaning we were born of seed, we all deserve the same thing. And that thing, the Bible says, that the wages of our sin is death. Friends, that's all we deserve from God. All we deserve because of our sin problem is death. Affliction, wrath, pain, all the benefits of brokenness, which is darkness and despair, that's all we deserve. But because of His love... He gives us what? Not what we deserve. So can I just help you understand that anything today that doesn't end in death was a good day? In spite of pain, in spite of affliction, in spite of hardship. Why? Because all of it is producing something. Endurance. A steadfastness. And that steadfastness moves us to character. Now, the word character there, when we see it, that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, the, the idea of character is uh, dokume. It, it's the idea that you would be proven in a trial. You cannot be proven without fire. It's the idea of refining. That if you want to see what you're made of, you got to get thrown into the fire. It's kind of the idea that you would see in the Old Testament of, of fine metals being melted down and then drossed, that the impurities would rise to, the, rise to the top and be scooped off. That doesn't happen. You don't get quality jewelry without the infirmities being removed. So the idea here is that you have to go through challenges. That's what character is. Character is not developed through comfortable, easy times. Character is not developed... Um, because life is hunky-dory. Character is developed when you're squeezed, when life gets hard. Character is developed when you're building a home and you continually hit your hand with a hammer. That's when character is developed. It is the trials and the painful conditions. It is those things that produce in us 
character. Can I just help you understand something? Sports don't build character. They reveal, oftentimes, a lack of character. What builds character is when your grandmother dies when you're three. When your dad leaves home when you're nine. When you watch your family fall apart before your eyes. What builds character is when your mom comes down with something that that challenges not only your belief in the Lord, but your belief in your whole family. What builds character is pain. And when you endure the pain and you see God's faithfulness in the midst of it on the other side, you have character. And you endure. It is that that produces the kind of character that we need. So character is something that's developed, but oftentimes revealed. If you want to see a man's character revealed, go play golf with him. That's what P.J. Wodehouse says, okay? So when your buddy hits one far to the right and he throws his club 40 yards or further than he hit his ball, he lacks character, which simply means he hasn't endured and his life hasn't been squeezed enough. When you're squeezed and you endure, it produces in you character, and character produces hope. Hope is the word el peace. Everybody say el peace. Just giving you another one, okay? Hope. So when the waiter is late, you say, hupomone, be steadfast. There's el peace, hope. The plate will arrive here in a bit. That's the idea. Hope is being built with a joyful and confident expectation. That's the definition. Now, the definition in the biblical sense, the Christian sense, is there is a person and his name is Hope. His name's Jesus. He is, our, he is our firm foundation and he is the one in whom we put our hope. The writer of Hebrews says it best in Hebrews 10, 23. Look what he says. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. Hold fast to what? Without wavering. For he, Jesus, who promised is faithful. He is our hope. He is our strong tower. He is our shield. He is our firm foundation. He is our refuge. He is our defender and our protector. Do you see who he is? He is worthy of what? Our worship. So the reason why is because all of these things, when we endure and it builds character and character hope, it gives us a product that we can live with. And that is the idea of true assurance. So verse 1 gives us amnesty. Verse 2 gives us access. Verses 3 through 5 give us assurance. Assurance of what? Here it is. Assurance that when you suffer, you will be comforted. 2 Corinthians 1. That in all of your hardships, in all of your afflictions, the God of all comfort will comfort you which is really good news. But can I help you see something real quick? If indeed we are to press on and be steadfast like Job, if we are to be immovable and we are to have an unwavering confidence in the God who is faithful, 
If we are to keep our eyes fixed on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we are to maintain a confession of hope because of our assurance, it is helping us understand that in our trials, God is not wasting a single moment of what you've gone through. Every single painful thing you're enduring right now is so God can make you more like him. Which helps you realize that when things aren't going the way you would like them to go, it's like, God, I trust you're doing something. You're not going to waste a single thing. He's not going to waste a cancer diagnosis. He's not going to waste a handful of losses. He's not going to waste the moment when your kid doesn't get selected, first chair, or by that matter, they're left off the select team. They're not going to waste. God's not going to waste those moments. But what he's waiting for are parents who will respond with steadfast endurance. With parents who have eyes to see that there is so much more. Because he wants to produce in us an eternal weight of glory. Do you really believe that? I mean, think about it for just a second. What do you want God to produce in you? An eternal weight of glory. And he's going to allow us to suffer. He's going to let us be squeezed. He's going to let us have some hardship in our lives, some struggles, so that he can show his faithfulness. That you can see that he is worthy of praise and that he is enough. That is our assurance. When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, You fear no evil. Why? Because he's with us. And his rod and his staff, they comfort us. But can I just tell you that if you know the progression of Psalm 23, when you come out of the valley of the shadow of death, you move up to the table rock. You walk through the valleys oftentimes in order to get to a place of refuge. It's hard. It's difficult. But I think we can have the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's Old Testament friends who were thrown in the fiery furnace. And even though they believed God would save save them, they say, hey, listen, even if he doesn't, it doesn't change who God is. Why? Because God gives us assurance. That's encouraging. Now, real quickly, one other real cool thing. If you got your Bible in front of you, I just want you to see this because I think it's too cool not to show you. If you remember that this right here, these 11 verses are the unmatched love of God. You you do a throwback to 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. You get to the end of 13, and, and 13 says, and these three things remain, faith, hope, and everybody say it with me, and love. And the greatest of these three things is love. Now, let me just show you Paul's progression here. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified, it's by faith. Verse 2, by faith into his grace, the latter part, that's how we stand. And we rejoice in what? Hope. Look at verse 5. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. It is by faith, by hope, and by love that we have amnesty, access, and assurance. And you can just know that the love of God remains even while you and I are still weak. Matter of fact, look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, 
At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When it says weak, the idea is, is that as you were sick or in despair or without hope in the world, as sinners. And then he says this in verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. He's saying every now and then you'll get somebody that'll stick out their neck for their buddy. Doesn't happen that often because you've got to really like your buddy to do that. For instance, let me help you understand. You have a family member, and they need a bone marrow transplant. Most of us are praying that God would provide somebody as a bone marrow transplant. But very few of us are saying, I hope I'm the guy. We have a story here in our church of a a brother that was willing to be a bone marrow transplant for his sister. And he knew the, the pain that was going to have to be endured He knew the agony that that was going to be, but he was willing because he loved his sister so much. What Paul is saying is he goes, listen, in this analogy, it's very difficult to find people to lay your life down for. You don't do that very often. Because let me help you understand who laid laid his life down for you. And in verse 8, Paul builds his case. You might die for someone who's decent, but what does it look like to die for somebody who's sorry? Would you lay your life down for a prisoner or for a convict or for someone that you thought was a low-life thug? Would you lay your life down for them? He goes, probably not. But God, look at this, verse 8, shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if you understand what that means... and you see it through the lens that Paul's writing it, you have to understand who you are. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says that our hearts are desperately sick, that they're deceitful. He asks the question, who can understand it? He goes further, though, and Paul would say that we were enemies of God. If you go all the way back to Romans chapter 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed against unrighteousness. That's us. Every one of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, not one is righteous, not even one. The reality is, is there's nothing good about us. We're all sinful, we're all wretched, we're all broken, we're all lost, we're all, all without hope in the world. Every single one of us are enemies of God, we're strangers, aliens, and orphans. Every single one of us deserve death and nothing less than that. To be punished and afflicted, stricken and punished. That's what we deserve. But God shows his love for us in this. That while we were broken, alienated, and estranged, God sent his, love, his son, Jesus, to die for us. Which I don't know about you would cause me to rejoice. Like, and like isn't that why we rejoice? Verse 9 goes on, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, meaning it's because of what Christ has done, that the wrath of God is no longer being revealed against you, but now you have the grace of God. It's by his son and his blood. Much more shall we be saved from him. From the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We have peace with God because of his son. In the margin of my Bible right there, I just wrote Isaiah 53, really big and bold. 
And the reason I did is because Isaiah 53 tells us that God took his son, Jesus, and led him like a lamb to the slaughter. That literally Jesus was punished by his father, broken, bruised, on the account of God. Colossians 2.14 says the legal demands of God were met in Jesus. Meaning that sin had to be punished and Jesus willingly took our place. That he was smitten, rejected, afflicted, bruised, spit on, pierced. So that you and I could have a relationship by faith, through grace, in Christ alone. Which is really cool. And that's what he is saying here. And so, in essence, we've been acquitted. You have been acquitted not because of what you've done. Not because of what your grandfather did or what your uncle did. Not because you've got a a building named after you or pews saved for you with plaques on the side. That's, That's not it. It's by faith that we've been justified by His blood. It is by Jesus and His righteousness that we are saved from the wrath of God that is being revealed against all unrighteousness, which is really good news. And he goes on in verse 11. He says, and more than that, like if there could be more than that, I don't know if y'all are following along with me, but I'm like, as I'm studying, like, there's more? And more than that, Look at it says, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Catch this. We have amnesty. We have access. We have assurance that God's not wasting a single moment in our life. We have been acquitted and we have total divine acceptance. That, my friends, is the purpose of Jesus Christ. And that is a reason for us to rejoice. Now look, maybe you're kind of new, and you're like, you're kind of checking out churches, and you're like, I don't know if I can handle this guy all the time, right? I'm like, let me ask you a question. Do you want to go and be a part of dead churches? Do you know what a dead church looks like? A dead church, it doesn't revolve around a particular person. It's not just like about a boring sermon. It's not just like, hey, I couldn't really follow this guy and didn't learn anything. I often hear that. It's like, well, I couldn't follow him. And look, you can't follow me half the time. I can't follow myself most of the time. But you know know what makes a church alive? Life change. It's that God showed up and he met sinners where they were. And he took them. They were blind. They were stumbling on a path of life. Broken, confused, deranged, sick, without hope. And they met the doctor. And their life was changed. And the the reality is, is that life change isn't reserved for the moral elitist. It's not reserved for the rich and the wealthy. It's not reserved for the guy in town who happens to know the name or they've lived here forever. Like in in that way, I feel like an outcast. And there's many of you that you feel the same. And I understand that. And I've been here for 25 years and I still feel the same. But the reality is it doesn't change my hope in the glory of my Savior. 
it doesn't change the fact that we can gather together and rejoice in hope despite our affliction. Matter of fact, it even reminds me that when our good buddies go and meet the Lord, as I had a really good buddy that went and met the Lord within the last week, I can rejoice in hope despite the suffering, despite the pain. Why? Because I believe wholeheartedly that God's word is true and that he's faithful. Which, friends, if that is true, that's why many of us look on our people around us and we go, like, why are they singing? Like, why, why, like, why do they raise their hand? That's a little weird, right? It's because they rejoice in hope. And when we sing, I want you to realize that rejoicing in hope is not always about the position of your body, but it is certainly the position of your heart. But it is our response in making the Lord known. And we sing to Him, and we, decla- we declare from the fruit of our lips the praise of God in that sense. And the reason we do that is because of a text like this. Because He loves us, and He's proven it to us in sending His Son, Jesus. So here, in just a second, we're going to have a chance to sing. And as we do, I pray that we would rejoice and hope I pray wholeheartedly that God would meet us where we are. And even as we close, as we get ready for an afternoon of whatever it is we got going, that we would rejoice that God is using everything for His glory and our good until He brings us home. And when we get there, verse 2 says, and we can stand in confidence in front of Him. What an incredible text. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would use this text to encourage my friends. Lord, just as you've encouraged me. Um, Lord, I pray that in light of earthly things, that you would teach us to see eternal ones. Lord, that's probably my biggest struggle. God, I am so, I'm so blind oftentimes to things around me. Lord, I'm so oftentimes mesmerized by the things of the world that I I just miss the things that you're trying to teach me. Lord, would you help us to see you? Lord, you tell us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, that the eye is the lamp of the body. And if the the eye is healthy, the whole body will be full of light. God, would you help us to see your light? Would you help us to see how you're moving in the world and help us to join you there? God, would you help us to honor you with our lips, with our lives? Lord, would you help us to honor you with our decisions? Lord, with our finances? Lord, would you help us to honor you with our words? Lord, would you help us to honor you with even the ways we share with our friends the truth of what we know? God, if we've been given this assurance, if we've been given all of these things from you because of your great love. Lord, would you help us to have the courage to share it with others? And Lord, for those that are suffering, that hardship has knocked on their door, God, would you help them to stand firm? And Lord, would you help them to rejoice even in their midst of their affliction? Lord, would you help them to develop steadfastness and immovable character that produces hope? Lord, we put our hope and our trust in you and we give this day to you and we count it a blessing that today we're not dead, but we're alive 
And anything better than death today is life. And it's a gift from you. And so I pray we would use that gift well for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.